0: Mm -hmm. This morning I want to uh, continue the cycle, really, which is turning out to be a cycle of three talks, which is looking at how mindfulness can be understood in a broad context, and really what the, what our sense of this core practice of mindfulness is in relationship to other dimensions of our development, other dimensions of our practice. So the theme I want to particularly focus on today is the relationship of mindfulness and wisdom. This whole series of talks was really stimulated by a discussion which uh, I was part of with uh, about half of the members of the Spirit Rock Teachers Council a little over two weeks ago in which we wanted to see how we both understood and respond to, want to respond to, this very um, accelerating movement of what we called secular mindfulness, or bringing mindfulness into the larger culture, where mindfulness is going into all these different parts of our life, all different disciplines. We're finding mindfulness being used extensively in psychology, psychotherapy. I mentioned a few weeks ago how um, one friend of mine who's a psychiatrist said that uh, this, in in the last uh, decade, mindfulness is one of the two major uh, new developments in psychology that's really taken quite into the mainstream. Uh, Bringing mindfulness into psychology and psychotherapy, it's been brought into healthcare, medicine, education, sports, the military, um, business settings, connected with yoga, and so forth. It's, and I probably have left out another 10 areas. <laughs> you know That it's very, very widespread. And it's both something clearly positive in certain ways, but we also had certain questions about that development, and in particular, wondered what the role, if any, of Spirit Rock might be in relationship to mindfulness being used so in so many settings. And often, in a way, that's quite different from how we teach here. I mentioned how I had myself, um, uh, a number of years ago, had a, a training in the Hakomi approach to body-based psychotherapy. It's a wonderful training. And I mentioned my surprise when we were talked, we were told about mindfulness and said mindfulness is basically being aware inside. Okay, you have a client, our next exercise is, you have five minutes to induce mindfulness in your client, in front of you, right? And do it. That's your exercise. You know, that was, you know, no further instruction, nothing about the breath, nothing about anything. And, you know, I, I think that has value, but I was also a little bit surprised that that's all it was, you know, and sometimes mindfulness is being used like that. So it raised certain questions as well as um, points to certain very powerful potentials, you know, that you have uh, this developing in so many sectors and it's just happening willy-nilly. So. Um, I was interested to explore, you know, what is mindfulness because we were, the concern would be that mindfulness is given a very narrow interpretation, that it's just about a limited technique or it's a technique for being a little bit peaceful or having a little bit of inner knowledge. And so I, uh, we were concerned about that and broadly speaking, we were concerned that the link between mindfulness and ethics mindfulness and the awakened heart and mindfulness and wisdom might not, not always be present. And so that, for me, was very interesting. And so I uh, first gave a talk uh, two weeks ago on mindfulness and ethics. And we looked at some of the ways that mindfulness could be disconnected from the ethical context. You know, the uh, extreme examples. Uh, could be of someone doing quite unethical actions and learning how to be more at peace about it. <laughs> you know, someone, you know, horror, horror, you know, uh, another extreme example would be, uh, actual historical example, which I mentioned, was of the use of meditation in Japan in the first half of the 20th century where, where Zen teachers gave pep talks for militarism and for soldiers going off to war and it's pretty well documented and somewhat somewhat um, horrifying in certain ways you have uh, I gave quotations that I think two weeks ago that were done there's a very powerful book called Zen and war or Zen at war uh, which, which documents a lot of that and you know there were there have been as I mentioned historical apologies from most of the Zen establishment some of them coming quite late you know, many, many years after the war. But there was a, a way in which med- the, and uh, the upshot of the apology was we disconnected meditation from ethics. We forgot our ethical basis. So we looked at that. That would be the extreme version, but it really it's, it was pointing to the ways that in what could be called mature mindfulness or in the classical tradition it's called right mindfulness. Mindfulness is understood as a factor of a path of liberation. Not simply a technique. And it's understood very particularly is that mature mindfulness has to be connected with ethics. Has to be connected with wisdom. Has to be connected, we might say, with the awakened heart. So I, I talked about that two weeks ago. I also talked about how there are strong tendencies in this culture to separate out knowledge from ethics, to separate out thinking from feeling and from the heart. So we, not only we have in our culture, I would say, predictable tendencies that these will be separated. And so in our own way, I think we have to find out what this means for us, but that we can be inspired by the, by the core teachings of the Buddha, where it was very clear that there is an integrated path and, you know, we know this as the eightfold path sometimes, the the last of the four truths in the the, the, uh, traditional teachings, which are understood as eight different factors which are developed, two of which have to do with wisdom, two of which have to do, or three of which have to do with ethics, and three of which have to do with uh, meditation, and that the very structure of this path of liberation is understood as bringing together these three dimensions, ethics, wisdom, and meditation. And yet, we have tendencies to separate them out in our own lives. And I'll explore more how we may do, at times, do that and separate out mindfulness from wisdom. But this was raised, this whole theme was raised by the concern that there may not always be that understanding of the interconnection of mindfulness, ethics, and wisdom in the secular applications of mindfulness. It may be used simply as a technique to pay attention, which could be both positive or it could potentially be negative, you know, in the sense of losing the ethical domain. So, and it's not just a problem for people pondering unethical actions. (laughs) But I think it's also an issue for us. How do we connect these parts? So our, because I think our mindfulness also can be rather limited. It can just be, at times, I want to be mindful so I can have a little bit of peace. Or so I can know maybe what's happening and I don't always make the connections between my own mindfulness and ethics and wisdom. So that's been the the inspiration for me, it's been to really point to this Uh, robust and full and powerful quality of mindfulness. It's not simply a technique for just being aware of sensations of the breath. But actually that as it matures, it brings in these other dimensions. Last time I talked about mindfulness and metta and about how mindfulness connects with the awakened heart in a way which I think we all know in certain ways. We know one of the common examples I gave Uh, points to a way that mature attention has not only ethics and wisdom connected to it, but has the awakened heart. And that, I think we probably know this most clearly when we're attending, let's say, to a friend in need. And attention has that caring quality. We know, I think from our own experience very much, how full attention has a caring and loving quality. We know that in those kind of examples. And the practice, I think, of doing both loving-kindness and mindfulness points towards mature attention, having that caring quality. And again, if this is uh, along the way, we may practice and the mindfulness may not always be gushing love. (laughs) It may just be with the breath in a matter-of-fact way. But as the mindfulness matures, we can ask questions about, is it connected with care when I'm mindful of my own experience or mindful of others' experiences? That was the theme, that was the theme uh, last time, last week. And so today, the theme is, how does mindfulness get connected with wisdom? You know, And so maybe, uh, maybe one way that we can ask that question is to say, how does mindfulness get disconnected from wisdom? You know, in our own experience or in that of others? And I, as I mentioned, I think both of the last two weeks, in the classical text, there is a term called mitcha sati, which micha is usually translated as wrong, or we could say immature mindfulness. And so it's very interesting that there is an understanding that mindfulness by itself is not always mature. And again, it's the understanding of right, what's translated usually as right mindfulness. And the last two times I gave a gloss on the translation and suggested that a better translation than right mindfulness may be mature mindfulness. Or what does mindfulness look like as we mature in the development of mindfulness. So I prefer that translation and I'll use that. I think from, from now on. And so we could say that what does immature mindfulness look like? First of all, the mature mindfulness is one in which it's linked with the other aspects of the path, with the other dimensions of uh, a path of freedom. And specifically, my, that's linked with different aspects of wisdom, uh, what are called mature understanding, mature intention or aspiration, and it's linked with, with different aspects of ethics. So what does, what, think to yourself, what might immature mindfulness look like or so-called wrong mindfulness? Michasati. You, know, uh, you know, and we can think of it in a few different ways. You know, what does uh, mindfulness look like without ethics? Because remember, mindfulness is this ability to attend. It's the ability to attend really to what is in front of us. It's a natural human quality which in our practice we refine. So mindfulness has to do with an ability to attend to what's in front of us, to stay with it, to sustain attention. You know, initially we sustain attention on the breath. It's the ability to really stay with an object. Uh, uh, From uh, a text from about 1500 years ago, mindfulness signifies presence of mind, attentiveness to the present. It has the characteristic of not wobbling. (laughs) I don't know what the translation of wobble is, but it has the characteristic of not wobbling, uh, that is, not floating away from the object. So mindfulness can stay with whatever we're attending to. And we can attend to anything. We could attend to the breath. I can attend to inner experiences. I can attend to a tree. I can attend to another person. So mindfulness signifies presence, uh, awareness. It also has the quality of being non-reactive. That mindfulness can be with the breath, with the phenomenon, without either trying to push it away in some often unconscious way, as we might do when things are unpleasant often. We try to push our experience away. I have a knee pain, and part of my mind is saying, get out of here. Or there's a certain emotion which arises which I don't like. And I tend to push it away. So as mindfulness really is stabilized, we're not reactive. Or another way of saying it is that we can notice when we are reactive, mindfully. I can be with my reactivity and really stay with that. But that mindfulness of reactivity is not reactive. Or we might say, mindfulness of anger is not angry. (laughs) It's a pretty significant aspect of our practice, right? That when I am mindful of a difficult state, I don't, you know, let's we're of a challenging state, I'm mindful of anger, I'm mindful of sadness. The mindfulness itself has more of a neutral quality and we could say mindfulness of sadness is not sad. But we tune into the sadness and so forth. It's a very important distinction. It's actually where freedom arises in the mindfulness mindfulness of anger is not angry and so forth and so that non-reactivity is quite is quite key to mindfulness and then with our mindfulness we learn how to bring the mindfulness into mindfulness of the body the four classical areas mindfulness of the sense of pleasant unpleasant or neutral what's called feeling tone or Vedana in the Pali language and mindfulness of thoughts and emotions the third aspect and then mindfulness of some of the larger patterns of phenomenon and I'll say a little bit more about that later the fourth foundation. So given that account of mindfulness, what might a wrong mindfulness or immature mindfulness look like? And let's say what does mindfulness look like without ethics? Well, we could imagine a terrorist trained in mindfulness. Mm-hmm. could be. We could imagine a terrorist trained in mindfulness who is very, very attentive as he or she develops the bomb. right? Really tuned in, not distracted. <laughs> you know Really noticing, really concentrated. you know uh, That would be immature mindfulness or wrong mindfulness because it's not connected with ethics. right And we could imagine people doing all sorts of unethical, activities with a very high level of mindfulness, right? That I could, uh, you know, I could be uh, a sniper. Or I could actually be a murderer. Or I could be a thief. And my actions could be supported by developing mindfulness to a high degree. That would be an example of wrong mindfulness, or immature mindfulness where it's disconnected from ethics. We could also have mindfulness that's disconnected from the heart, with the awakened heart, from compassion. You know, uh, there's, a, there's a story which I heard which I don't know if it's actually true. I suspect it's what we call apop- apocryphal, do you know that word? Meaning, probably made up. <laughs> no. And it's a story that I I remember hearing of some monks who were really deep into their mindfulness practice, and they walked by a pond, and they saw someone in trouble in the water, and they stayed with their mindfulness practice rather than help the person. Again, it must have been a teaching story. It's hard to imagine that really happening. But I remember hearing that story. And that would be, you know, that that would be an example of the mindfulness which somehow gets cut off from compassion. You know, and a more ordinary way that that might appear is, which sometimes I've heard stories, and it probably has occurred in my life uh, personally, is where I might be so really into my mindfulness practice, and someone in my family or house is really really distressed, and wants my attention. I say, I got to do my mindfulness practice. And we might do it in a way in which we, you know, over time, we are actually using it as a way not to actually attend to what has to occur. I think we can use it in that way. Does anyone have anything remotely ever happen like that before? just a few. Um, so we can have it like that. We can also have mindfulness without wisdom, right? I'll, I'll give a few examples and maybe hear from you. We can have mindfulness without wisdom. One that occurs to me, again, is where we get so into the mindfulness that we lose perspective, basically. And I was thinking that I can, be, I can be walking down a street really into feeling the sensations of my feet, feeling the sensations of the contact with the asphalt, You know, hearing sounds getting louder, of um, horns blaring. And right up to the moment of contact, I can be very, very mindful in my last moments on Earth <laughs> as a large truck comes by. <laughs> so that would, be, that would be mindfulness without wisdom, presumably. Right? And um, you know where I could, sometimes we use mindfulness as a way to concentrate, just that I might be really so focused on finding peace in my meditation that I don't give much attention to the wisdom dimension, I just... Sometimes if we don't bring in the wisdom dimension, we can have mindfulness and concentration, and have calm and a lot of peace, and sometimes that's very valuable, but we may not have much wisdom. That's possible. So I'm wondering, for you, if you think of what are some other examples of um, your own experiences, maybe, in, in either meditation on the cushion, or um, in daily life, where you maybe have mindfulness without wisdom. Anyone want to give an example? No? Please. And I'll repeat it for everyone and for the re- recording. Sometimes I use it when I'm in distress. Yeah. I sort of use it as a way to just out, as opposed to sort of Yeah, yeah. It's a good example. We, we might use meditation Uh, when we're in a difficult situation, sometimes there's a way just to have, again, similar maybe to the other example, where I might just want to have some bliss or peace. And by itself, uh, that's not necessarily unskillful, unless that's our perpetual way of dealing with it. In the short term, that could be skillful, to bring one back to balance. Uh, If something's really challenging has happened, I use meditation to not be so reactive, to come back to balance. If we use that continually as a way to sort of avoid dealing with the issue, that would be mindfulness without wisdom, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, please. Uh, my son, just who's about 40 now, just reminded me recently about when he was five years old how I used to make him wait a half an hour while I meditated. Yeah. So the example of making one's son wait for half an hour while you meditate and and. Why would you say that was unwise? Because he's, uh, he was five; he wasn't, you know, old enough to maybe entertain himself for a half an hour. Yeah. And I was like, you know, don't bother me. And, yeah. You know, so maybe. Think, you know, yeah. Well, I can't bother mom, but I need to eat or something. So that might be there was a person in need, and, and I'm gathering that you're interpreting your example of meditating while the five-year-old is. Doing whatever. <laughs> and interpreting that maybe as a little self centered? I would say there. I was giving you the room to use your own words. <laughs> uh, interpreted as very self centered. So, so maybe one other example. Anyone want to give another example of where mindfulness might not be connected with wisdom in your own experience? Uh, Pam? Of, of using mindfulness to actually hold on to unwholesome states.
1: Yeah.
0: So to kind of justify my own greed or my own um, mm. and I, I guess I can I can see myself kind of going down this line of thought oh well X is unfair and therefore I deserve it and therefore you know kind of using the mindfulness to track my own of mm-hmm. feelings—that mm-hmm. um, actually further justifies an unwholesome state, as mm-hmm. opposed to mm-hmm. seeing that for the. Delusion. And so the example is that, if if I'm understanding you right, of, of, tracking a lot of thoughts leading to uh, a problematic choice, right. <laughs> and using mindfulness and maybe even justifying it. Say, look, I'm being so mindful and tracking all of this, you know. Uh, all the while somehow intuitively knowing that it's not wise or not appropriate. So using mindfulness and even the activity of mindfulness is a bit of a cover. <laughs> you yeah, something like that. So we can think, we can see different ways that mindfulness may, may not be connected with wisdom. And again, I think maybe in some of the examples of so-called secular mindfulness, mind, mindfulness might be used just as paying attention. And that's all that the instructions given, not necessarily connected with wisdom. And and as I mentioned, the the quality of mindfulness that's called mature mindfulness involves the uh, integration of mindfulness with ethics and wisdom. And I I gave examples of of ways to practice in the last two sessions. I think a lot of the practice is actually accomplished when we actually attend to all of these dimensions. That there's there you know, so that we have parts of our practice time where we attend to mindfulness, where we attend to wisdom, where we attend to ethics. Now, I think one of the dangers of the way that our practice has been interpreted in this culture is that we tend mostly to focus on meditation. And it's almost like our practice is make sure you get in your half hour sitting every day. And that in itself is good, but we could ask the question, where does ethics come in, and where does wisdom come in? You know, and we give, I think part of the way that we teach, I mean, we bring, try to bring wisdom perspectives in, I think in the talks, in the retreats, but in terms of what might constitute a daily life practice where all of these come come in, I'm not sure that we always do such a good job on that. Maybe we need more attention to that, because in my experience, the integration occurs when we're giving attention to all of these dimensions regularly, and that there's a natural kind of mingling that occurs, or a natural kind of integration. They're, they're, they're not all the same, but the question is, where in my life do I attend to the ethical dimension? You know, in some communities, there might be the recitation. In some one community that I stayed in for a while in England, that was a, a Buddhist-based community, once a week, they had a whole you know, hour in the morning and t- renewed the commitment to ethical precepts and had discussions. We did that just this morning for this group. You know, how do we do that on a daily basis? You know, how do we attend to the ethical dimension daily? Well, it might be we might each want to shift our practice some. I think if we have once a week for an hour to reflect on ethics, that would go a long way you know, just to look at the ethical precepts and reflect on them five minutes, ten minutes every day would be quite helpful. You know, and the same thing with the wisdom dimension. This could come through study. It could come through uh, sh- uh, having the wisdom dimension influence one's practice. And I'll, I'll say more about that, but it be something could be something like bringing an understanding of impermanence in the actual meditation. Because mature mindfulness has those dimensions integrated, and in fact the mindfulness itself as it matures and as it develops man starts to manifest wisdom more and more and I think and the way I understand the relation of all these I think I mentioned last time is that the that as the mindfulness deepens it has an impact on ethics and wisdom. If I take the ethical precepts and my mindfulness is stronger, I might pick up in daily life when I'm getting closer to an ethically problematic action, when I'm using speech, for example, in a way that's not respectful to another person, and my mindfulness might say, "Oh, Donald, your self-interest is getting in the way in the way of your ethics." You know, and, I might, and that might—that's mindfulness. It's a wake-up call, right? Or I might say, you know, as my friend Diana Winston often likes to say at the beginning of a conversation or beginning of a story, I'm not sure this is really wise speech, but... (laughs) It's a very good title for some book. (laughs) uh, But but there's some sensitivity. And we often, you know, when we work a lot with speech, we have sensitivity. Uh, Am I really being truthful right now? As the mindfulness deepens, it tunes in to when we're not. Similarly, as we're more ethically sensitive, we have more of a sense of uh, interdependence, which is the core teaching of wisdom. And we become more able to tune into that when we are being more self-centered. And so, as we work with each of them, they sort of help us deepen in the other area. This is almost like a spiral, maybe. As we keep practicing, the er the three broad areas of ethics, wisdom, and meditation develop together. So how so how to work with that? I think we can need to make we need to ask ourselves: Do am I really giving attention to all three, or am I? You know, for many of us, it's a struggle just to meditate every day, right? So it's like, so it's like Donald. You know, you're, my, I'm just trying to get half an hour a day, and you're giving me more homework. You know, just give me a break. You know, so let me just do one thing at a time. So that, that could be legitimate. So, but, but the, I think the, the pointer nonetheless is towards how do we have all three of these operative. As we develop in mindfulness, wisdom will tend naturally to develop. And, and, and it's, it's, quite, it's quite interesting how that happens. That um, as we um, develop in mindfulness and just really look carefully at experience, over and over, and mindfulness depends on this repetition. That's why the daily practice is so crucial. Mindfulness depends, the learning seems to occur, not when we see a negative pattern for the first time, or the third time, or the tenth time, but guess what? Change sometimes occurs on the 1,732nd time. Now don't, you don't need to count. (laughs) and wait for the 1,732. That was arbitrary number, just chosen for an example. But it's mysterious that some, there's something in our mechanisms which makes us relatively slow learners. But the repetition of mindfulness, we attend to something, we see the mind reacting to the same kind of pattern 300 times. Sometimes something just wakes up and we say, that is leading to suffering, I do not need to do that anymore. I think we all know that. that there's in, Because we see that, my, my experience of practice is that the the more superficial negative patterns fall away rather quickly when we start meditating sometimes. And the deeper ones stay along for the ride, <laughs> so to speak, and they, t- they take time. So we, just the simple attending over and over, we attend more and more first, we just get familiar, with attending, what's it like to attend to anger? How do I actually, how can I actually be mindful of anger? As we go deeper, then we start to see, oh, anger has this nature. Anger feels hot in the body. My mind is doing this. Here's what my body's doing. And we notice, and maybe we study anger 30 times, and we start to notice these things. Then we start to notice, oh, what was the trigger for the anger? You know, what is my personal pattern? of being angry. What triggers it? Where does it go? What's beneath it? When we keep on attending with mindfulness, all of this starts to get revealed. And there can be understanding, there can be a certain amount of healing. Just staying mindful, mindfully, with something difficult tends to be healing. And so there can be that change, and there can be, start to be wisdom about what is the process of healing. How can I, if I've healed with my anger and worked through something, how can I bring that to something else which is unresolved? We start to get wisdom about the very process of transformation. We start to know that more. We start to be attuned more to larger scale patterns. We start to bring that out into our daily lives. And so mindfulness can lead simply by attending over and over again to that wisdom. There's an interesting term in the classical text also, that's part of mindfulness. It's a term called sump, uh, sampajana, which is usually translated as clear comprehension, which is part of mindfulness. Mindfulness is able uh, especially really to know the context and know what's appropriate. This is really what clear comprehension means, that we can have a, a mindfulness not just about the sensation that I'm experiencing, but about also about the context. And I can have a sense of the wisdom. What's appropriate, you know, it, it can be an aspect of clear comprehension to know, I'm feeling angry. What would be an appropriate response right now? That, would, that starts to become part of mindfulness, and that really is a wisdom aspect. I'm, uh, I'm angry now. I'm, um, what should I do? Okay, well, let's attend to how the body feels. Let's attend to what's going on with the mind. Let's really notice. If the anger ends, what is what what appears? Let me notice when it when it appears, when it goes away that would be an aspect of wisdom called clear comprehension and I start to notice those patterns. I also can start to tune in part of clear comprehension is called the clear comprehension of phenomena or of reality, which is I start to notice various patterns of experience and The key patterns that are connected with wisdom that I can follow with mindfulness are noticing first, impermanence. Second, how suffering arises and how it passes away. And thirdly, how there is a kind of construction of self or of a sense of separation or self-image. And as mindfulness matures, there's a special attention arises quite naturally, or we can be guided to this, in those three areas. And we did that practice at the end of the sitting to work in a very basic way with impermanence, to really notice how things arise and pass away. When we follow that, we become more attuned to the impermanent quality of everything. And it's said that if we really know how things arise and pass away, we won't grab hold so tightly. Whether it's of a particular experience, or a particular person, or a particular aspect of our lives. That if we really are tuned into impermanence, we still make choices, we still make (coughs) commitments, but it can be done a little more lightly because we're really tuned into how things arise and pass away. And we can look at impermanence on a gross level in terms of (coughs) how nature changes, how there's birth and death. And we can look at it on a more um, experiential level of how our own experience is changing every moment. As we're more mindful, we start to see into how we create, almost have a set of constructions in our mind, and things seem more permanent than they are. Our language does that too. But as the mind gets quieter, and the mindfulness gets more refined, it starts to lead to more wisdom because we start to notice that things are rising and passing away rather quickly. Our usual way of experiencing the world, in which there are solid objects here, there's a chair, there's this here, it starts to shift as our mind gets more quiet and we see more a changing flow of phenomena. When the mind gets quiet, sometimes we may have experienced this on retreat, and it can shift our whole sense of things. We can start to see that language is a very rough, pragmatic tool to help us navigate in the world. And that it may not actually apply to the way things most basically are, which is much more fluid than we may think. And sometimes I know we experience this fluidity. Tuning in with mindfulness as it develops through impermanence can help us to see that. In a similar way, we're really invited to tune into moments in which there's suffering. And to be mindful of suffering starts to develop a, a greater wisdom as well. <coughs> One of the practices we can do in a daily sitting as well as in retreat is to really have our radar up for any moment of suffering and remembering that I'm using the word suffering and distinguishing it from pain. Distinguishing the word suffering from pain. Pain means the presence of the unpleasant. And I have, you know, that teaching which I like to give a lot, the teaching of the two arrows, explicates that, that the Buddha says everyone has unpleasant experiences. What differentiates a practitioner from a non-practitioner? Non-practitioner has unpleasant experiences and tends to react. When I have physical pain, I tend to contract. When I have unpleasant emotions, I tend to push them away or blame someone else. And that's called shooting the second arrow. Shooting the, second arrow. the first arrow is simply the presence of the unpleasant. The typical conditioning is when I have the, the unpleasant present, I try to push it away, get rid of it, get rid of that emotion, get rid of that difficult person, blame that person, judge that person, and so forth. That's our conditioning. And the non-practitioner tends to do that. You know, we do that in all sorts of ways. And the practitioner learns to be with the unpleasant without shooting the second arrow. The second arrow is called suffering. The first arrow could be called pain. Right? And this is, and so we can be on the lookout for when we're suffering. Another word that we sometimes use to describe suffering is resistance to the present moment. Some kind of reaction or resistance to something happening in the present moment. And so we learn how to tune in to when they're suffering. A special focus of mindfulness becomes can I really be mindful of when I'm being reactive? Becoming an expert on the various patterns of my own reactivity starts to become interesting as practice matures. And instead of looking for peace and bliss, I say, I was channeling George Bush, and I say, (laughs) bring it on. (laughs) Sorry, I don't know where that came from. (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) No political commentary intended, but that's what... (laughs) <laughs> sometimes when I talk, I, don't, I just let it come through. <laughs> anyway, um, so I sometimes, but I say something similar to myself, I say, I have enough stability and maturity where I'm willing to open up to suffering. Let me do that. Let me study it. Let me study my own suffering, because that's a way to wisdom. And that's a way that I can learn not to shoot the second arrow. Essentially, I can learn not to suffer. Which doesn't mean at all that I don't have unpleasant experiences. But I don't, as it were, let them proliferate. And, you know, and I've mentioned many times, I think the vast amount of our suffering is the second arrow and not the first arrow. If we could limit what's painful to the first arrow, I think we would have about 5 or 10 percent of the level of pain in our lives that we'd have. I think it's quite profound, I could say more about that if we want to in the discussion. So we tune into that, we study that. And then we also start to tune in, in a more, maybe a more subtle way, to when there's a construction of self, to when there's self-image. You know, the language that we use often is it says, when do I personally identify with a content of experience? Because the guidance is to really just be with experience without saying, oh, I had that thought, I'm bad. You know? Or, oh, I have this feeling, I am just... You know, we, make, we make a self-construction around an experience. What we're trained to do is simply be mindful and watch when the sense of self arises and study that. It's one of the great um, breakthroughs that can happen, happen in meditation where we start to see how self functions, how self-image functions. You know, for me, it was a very important part at the beginning of my practice. Not that it's over. (laughs) But that I was, you know, I was, I had the, when I was first meditating and doing a lot of retreats, I really wanted to be a good meditator. I had the self-image of being a good meditator. God spare you from wanting to be a good meditator, or goddess spare you, or whatever your belief system is. Um, but what that meant was that I wanted, on, you know, I mean, it's really, it was kind of the absurdity. It can get quite absurd, but it meant, you know, I remember, I, I, at one retreat I was sick, and I was sniffling the whole time, and I was swallowing a lot, and I thought I was upsetting other people, and I thought everyone would know I'm a bad meditator, and it was really, I tormented myself. But I got to study how self-image was forming. I got to study it in detail, and I could see how much fear was connected with it. It was quite revealing. It was a lot of study of fear, a lot of study of self-image, and some little piece of it fell away in the mindfulness. And that was more, because our aim is more just to be present with phenomena without that identification happening. Challenging. But it's, it's a third element. And as we practice more, That, see the wisdom, see how the wisdom can develop out of the mindfulness? And so, the, as we practice more, I think, mindfulness and wisdom get more and more integrated. So that there, we might say that there's something like a wise awareness. Or a, um, a mindful wisdom. In the Thai forest tradition, there's, they've developed a term which actually doesn't appear in the classical teachings, which is called satipanya. It's the word for mindfulness and the word for wisdom brought together to make a new word. And they use that in the Thai forest tradition, for example, as taught by Achan Cha, who's the teacher of Jack Cordfield, Achan Semedo. And it's really quite beautiful, because it's really saying mindfulness and wisdom in their mature forms are connected. And that, that there is a kind of awareness that develops as these both become more mature, in which there's a deep awareness that has wisdom functioning in an intuitive way. Initially, we may work with wisdom by reading books, by hearing talks. It can be more conceptual. Eventually, all of this gets integrated <coughs> so it's more intuitive. And so that mindful wisdom become something intuitive in the moment and deeply expressive of wisdom about impermanence about the nature of suffering and the skillfulness of not resisting experience and the quality of letting experience just flow without the heavy-handedness of self-image and so I think that's where that's where it points you know, it points towards that integration and when we f- do the practice further it gets integrated with, with the quality of love and care and with an ethical grounding. And this is, this, is, this is the direction of our practice of mature mindfulness is caring, is ethically grounded, is wise. And to practice in these ways, we want to have some ways in our daily and weekly practice that we give attention to all of these aspects. Again, we can maybe talk further about some more practical ways to do that, but especially simply by giving some time for each of the components. They tend to get integrated. Let's just sit now for a moment and we can have some discussion together. We have a little bit of time for any questions, discussion, (coughs) uh, comments, spontaneous reflections, and poems, please. And let's let's say our name also as we start. My name is Patty. I have a question about um, psychology, uh, the shadow side of the personality, and integrating into um, sort of wise mindfulness. Yeah. sides and maybe you can help me integrate those a little better in Buddhism because they seem to be conflicting at times that we have to look at the shadow and the light as it were yeah, yeah. so you know the dark and the light the sad and the happy the selfish and the selflessness that in order to fully integrate as a human being we have to look at both sides of our personality yeah so the question is about how does this uh, mature mindfulness really maybe integrate uh, what western psychologists following carl jung call the the shadow and is that is that fair enough yes. yeah um, <clears throat> I'll give a short answer I think (laughs) it's a big it's a big topic and you know I did give a series of I don't know how many talks it was maybe three talks about working with the shadow uh, on a Wednesday morning so it's on they're on Dharma seed um, more than you would want ever to know about the shadow (laughs) so let me see if I can a quick response I I don't see if I can have a sense uh, of what's essential Mindfulness practice in itself has the potential to reveal the shadow. For example, when I was um, doing that practice, the mindfulness practice, where my uh, a certain self-image <clears throat> was revealed, and I also saw that that was connected with fear, we could, we could say that that <clears throat> is related to some aspects of the shadow. Um, The shadow is usually defined as parts of one's being or personality, which are either um, not known or seen, maybe um, as negative, or seen originally as negative, or in some cases um, suppressed historically in our being. You know, if I if I have um, a family upbringing where anger is not welcome, my anger will be part of my shadow. Right? Uh, Or if I have a... And the shadow could be actually my... could be beautiful qualities as well. We usually think of in terms of negative qualities, but it could be if I read, um, if if I read People magazine a lot, and and I believe and I focus all my attention on the stars, my own brilliance will become part of my shadow, will be in the shadows, as it were. Very common in our culture. I focus all my attention at the the stars, you know, an interesting image. And then my own beauty, brilliance, and so forth will become hidden to me, could be. And so meditation itself can open up to much of the shadow. Because what we simply do is we simply create an open space to be mindful and there's rather minimal input. So some parts of the shadow will tend to arise just because there's an available space and we get to see things that we didn't see otherwise. How many people can relate to that from your own practice? That you saw parts of yourself which you either knew very little about or almost didn't know very much about. That you found parts. So that's, that's very common. I'm seeing a lot of nods even you know, and a good uh, portion raise their hand. So some parts of the shadow don't always come in meditation. Sometimes, you know, uh, sometimes some parts of it come out in other sorts of circumstances. It could be loss or uh, difficulty or um, close relationships and so forth. That sometimes, I remember hearing one monk say, you know, he was a monk for 10 or 20 years and he got in a close relationship and he found all sorts of parts of himself that he did not know existed, right? And that can happen. And so, in that context, sometimes I think special attention is necessary to bring attention to particular areas. And what's very, maybe the last thing I'll say is it's very interesting about mindfulness and it really follows some from the talk today. We sometimes think of mindfulness as just generally being aware. But in the tradition, mindfulness actually isn't just general. It's a, you know, the instructions are to be mindful of this. Be mindful of the body. Be mindful of your thoughts and emotions. Be mindful of impermanence. Really check out how things arise and pass. Really be mindful of suffering. Be mindful of the appearance of self. There's a lot of guidance on where to be mindful. And we might also similarly say, here, you know, we sense these are some shadow areas. Let's, in a way, try to be mindful in certain circumstances. Really try to tune into something or, you know, bring it, bring it to consciousness. Be aware of your dreams and so forth. Yeah, short answer. (laughs) Thank you for the question. So that that can influence our mindfulness practice because we can actually, sometimes we think I don't want to use concepts, but actually concepts help us to guide us to pay attention in certain ways. Uh, Pam, please. Yeah. You know, going down that road or that story or I am this way. I have this yeah. constructed self that at times I can see that that's a false, that that's just a construct. Yeah. You know, it's not solid. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious about other um, ways that that can be, that we can see that, that. Yeah. How that self is, how we create I mean mine. So... Um, a question about how about different ways that we can see that sense of separate self. Uh, again, it's it's a it's a uh, large large topic, and I also gave a series of three talks on that, <laughs> 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 which are on Dharma seed, So I think the the talks were called self and not self, you know, and also and it also linked to the shadow. So. That that being said, <laughs> so that being said, it's um, I've been thinking about offering um, working talking about that theme here, because I think it's a very it's a very uh, powerful theme. So so there are di- many different dimensions, and we can be more and more subtle in the way we see aspects of self. We can go all the way from the most gross aspects of self-image. You know the way we, but we we basically become attuned to it both on the cushion and in the flow of daily life. So I become a cushion, and if I'm in a situation and I'm, and I'm finding myself saying, I want to be seen as. I want to be given credit in this, let's say, work situation or social situation. That in itself isn't necessarily uh, a bad thing, but we want to tune. We want to um, track that. We want to track that sense of self. Uh, There are many, many different levels of a sense of self. There are the gross levels, there are the more subtle levels of the constructions of self which are semi-conscious or unconscious. That can come often from the conditioning that we got at a very young age through family and culture. That can give a very uh, uh, powerful sense of our identity, some of which we start to open up to in meditation or in psychological work, we start to see those aspects. A lot of the times we can really see self, particularly where, where we find suffering. Uh, you can almost ask the question as an inquiry question, if there's suffering, what's your self-construction right now? Yeah, it's a good question. Similar to the question that Joseph Goldstein, when I was first practicing, right at the beginning of my practice, he gave me a, he gave me a practice question, which was quite influential. He said, if there's suffering, where's the grasping? Again, understanding suffering as distinct from presence of the unpleasant, from pain. Suffering as the reactivity or the resistance. So we can ask that inquiry question right in the moment. If there's suffering, where's the grasping? Or where, what's the sense of self here? You know, or something like that. It can get, so it can be quite subtle. A lot of the times there can be a sense of self, emerge in the suffering, where there can be some of our woundedness starts to appear. And, and you know what I, when I reflected on the connection of Western psychology and practice, some of the interesting aspects came out. Know, Western psychology identifies really well where people get developmentally stuck, quite well, much better than in Buddhism, and those are places where self gets thick, yeah. where self gets thick. You know, it's like where I feel, where I have wounds or vulnerability, can often be the places where uh, in a social situation or just in something in terms of something happening where I sometimes feel suffering and where there can be a very thick sense of self. The invitation is not to get rid of the sense of self, it's to be mindful of it. And often, in, especially in the examples I gave, with a lot of compassion. You know, especially if the places of self are connected with suffering, with our woundedness. And then there are yet further subtle levels of self which, are, which has to do with the whole sense of separation of self and other. You know, and one of the ways you know, that, that is helpful to talk about self in a more, sometimes more accessible way, is to talk about developing a sense of interconnection. And so we can also, in a positive way, look at where we feel interconnected. We can ask, what's the sense of self when I feel really connected with a person? there may be much less of a sense of self. You know, sometimes when I've been very close to people, we may have the same dreams, definitely have the same thoughts. You know, and I gave that example last time of the Anarudas. Maybe I'll close with this. The Anarudas in the old text, who were, I think, five monks who were all living together, and they took on the same name because they said our minds and hearts are merged through our practice, particularly the practice of loving-kindness. And the Buddha address them. Of, hey, you Rutas, <laughs> You know. And, you know, a very, very powerful example. And I think we probably know this from our experience. At times, something gets merged between oneself and another. What is that about? You know, what is, Isn't that mysterious? Isn't that beautiful at times? What would it be like to live more and more with that sense of interconnection? That's what our practice is about. Yeah. Good. So could go on for a long time now, but uh, that would be um, inappropriate mindfulness, just to attend to questions for another half hour. So uh, let's just sit for a few moments quietly. And I'll invite us to bring to mind what may have been helpful from the morning related to the theme of mindfulness and wisdom. Or perhaps to something else that just arose or that clicked for you, that doesn't have anything in an obvious way to do with that theme, and also also invite to be there your intentions for um, that come from the morning. And you may want to ask yourself, how do I bring in, in a sustained way, these, these dimensions of mindfulness, of ethics, of wisdom? Through reading, through sh- you know, shifts in your practice somewhat. How do, I, how do I give attention to all three of those on an ongoing basis? And so we close by knowing that we do this practice, this exploration as a community. We do it for ourselves, we do it for others, we share. We share our practice with all those we come in contact. And may all of this be of benefit to ourselves and to others.